Welcome to the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Your Honors. What's at the end of this case? How did this come about? Are you in the pay of the Microsoft Corporation? Start with the text of the Second Amendment. Your Honor, I, I, I think that that could be viewed as political, but that, that would be... How about the First Amendment? No, Your Honor, I don't, I don't think the First Amendment... You're out again. Still out. I think we're all in Mexico. Welcome to episode 105 of the Podium and Panel Podcast. Last week we only had one case, but making up for that, we cover four cases in our three segments today. The first case today is the Illinois Appellate Court, 5th District, will decide Ellen versus Missouri Baptist Medical Center, a case that involves personal jurisdiction, a topic that we've covered on other episodes of the Podium and Panel Podcast. Though this is a very strange twist it is, on that. It is. That, that's very true. Our second case today is from the Illinois Appellate Court, First District, Justice Hyman and Walker, Justices Hyman and Walker, Norwood versus Moore, involving a candle and whether it was open and obvious, and we'll get into the facts of that case shortly. And then our third segment today is, is involving two cases from the Fifth District uh, that were argued back to back last week on arbitration provisions. The first is Copper Bend Pharmacy Inc. versus Optum RX. And the second is Rotan versus Unlimited Development, Inc. With that, let's turn to our first case today. Can there be personal jurisdiction in Illinois over a Missouri hospital that accepted transfer of patient from Illinois? Does it matter that the defendant hospital is owned by a parent company that provides care in Illinois? And can the court take judicial notice of that fact? Do unchallenged allegations of marketing by the defendant's agents in Illinois seeking transfers of patients sufficient to constitute general personal jurisdiction when the defendant owns no land in Illinois, conducts no activities in Illinois, and is incorporated in Missouri. Those are among the questions to be answered when the Illinois Appellate Court, 5th District, decides Allen versus Missouri Baptist Medical Center that was argued this past week. The plaintiff's Illinois provider reached out unsolicited to a Missouri hospital to accept transfer of a patient. The transfer was accepted and it was in Missouri where the alleged medical malpractice occurred. The plaintiff filed suit in Illinois against the hospital and some of the medical personnel. The hospital challenged personal jurisdiction, but the circuit court found specific personal jurisdiction and denied the defendant's motion to dismiss. The defendant hospital appealed. Pat, tell us about oral argument in this case. Thanks, Dan. And so there's a couple things that are important to keep an eye on here procedurally. In Illinois, I think most jurisdictions as well, if the plan, the, you take as true the plaintiff's allegations that lay personal jurisdiction, and those are taken as true unless they are rebutted by an affidavit from the defendant. And the affidavit in this case only said, we don't do business in Missouri or in Illinois. We're incorporated in Missouri. You know, we don't have any land in Illinois. We don't have anything to do with Illinois. But Justice Cates, in particular, kept coming back to these various allegations in the complaint where agents and employees of the hospital solicited uh, patients from Illinois, though not this patient. Um, this patient uh, was being treated in Illinois. The, the, the deceased's doctor unsolicited contacted Missouri Baptist and say, hey, can you take can you take this this patient? And they say, sure, send her across the river. 
So across the river she goes and she gets treated. Um, so that's the first kind of procedural thing. The second procedural thing is that the plaint is that the plaintiff seemed to have only argued specific personal jurisdiction, but to cover all their bases, the plaintiff, the defendant said, hey, we're not subject to general personal jurisdiction or specific personal jurisdiction. Again, Justice Kate seemed to be buying no. it. Uh, she said, well, there's all these allegations of, of contacts, and she points to the Burger King case. Now, those that remember back from first year of law school, civil procedure, uh, remember that whopper of a case. Uh, that's at least what my uh, law school professor described it. And that's a case where Burger King sued a franchisee, a Michigan franchisee, in its home county of Dade County, Florida. That's Miami. And the court said, yeah, there was personal jurisdiction over the franchisee in Florida because of all of the contacts between the franchisee and Burger King in Florida and noticed that they could be sued in Florida and, and, and so on. I have no earthly idea what that case has to do with this no. one. Um, none. Allegations of, of marketing have to do with specific personal jurisdiction and in particular the Ford case. So the Ford case was a case most recently decided by the United States Supreme Court that held that Ford could be sued on a specific personal jurisdiction theory in, in, in uh, uh, Minnesota and Montana. All these cases apparently involve states that begin with L. Right. Uh, <laughs> Missouri, Montana, Minnesota. Uh, and because of the pervasive nature of the advertising, of by Ford, they could be there was a causal link between, or there didn't need to be a causal link because they had done enough to subject themselves to specific personal jurisdiction in those forms. That's not even close to what's being alleged here. There's no causal relationship at all. And I understand the, the Ford case said you didn't have to have a causal relationship, but you can't, so no one could hardly claim that Missouri Baptist is so thoroughly, uh, you know for lack of a better term, carpet bombing the, t the land with advertisements about go to Missouri Baptist. That's hard to, hard to imagine that they are now subject to pers specific personal jurisdiction. And also going back to the general personal jurisdiction point, the one thing I wish the defendant had said that he didn't is in order for general personal jurisdiction to be exercised, the defendant has to be, quote, at home in the jurisdiction. That's from the Daimler case from the United States Supreme Court. Burger King is a specific personal jurisdiction case, not a general personal jurisdiction case. Um, and then they came, and then she, Justice Cates pointed to Russell versus SNFA, which is an Illinois Supreme Court case, which dealt with ball bearings in a, uh, in a helicopter that crashed in Illinois, manufactured by a French manufacturer. And in that case, and that's a stream of commerce case, another distinct kind of situation. And not, we don't need to get into the Asahi case, whether we have the broad or the narrow scope of, of, uh, of uh, personal or, uh, stream of commerce jurisdiction. That makes it somewhat distinct. But that case, there was, there was at least evidence. And I know from that case, the defendants were represented by one of my former partners. And there was a, there was a mischaracterization of one of the interrogatory answers that polluted the decisions in that entire case. Once it got into the opinion, the appellate court opinion, they couldn't get it out. Mm. The, the, it, it actually, they didn't say what they, how uh, the, these contacts with Illinois, it, it, they, 
they couldn't talk the court out of it once they read this interrogatory answer the way that they did. Um, and so Russell's a stream of commerce case, also a specific personal jurisdiction case, not a general personal jurisdiction case. So again, I'm not sure what this has to do with anything. The One of the justices brought up a case called Harlow versus Children's Hospital from the First Circuit from 2005 and asked both parties, are you familiar with this case? Because the facts seem strikingly similar. It's the referral of a, of a, of a uh, child from a Maine doctor to a Massachusetts facility, and then they sue back in Maine, um, the Massachusetts facility, because the statute, in part because the statute of limitations was longer in Maine than it was in Massachusetts. And the First Circuit said, no, you can't do that. Um, so it's, it, I, I really don't see how a simple solicitation of, or an unsolicited a transfer of a patient across the river could lead to uh, there being personal jurisdiction. And then to, Dan also brought up the parent company. So this is another another procedural issue. Apparently, Missouri Baptist Hospital is owned by the Barnes Jewish Network, which is a large hospital network in the Metro East and St. Louis area. And apparently it has facilities in, in the Metro East on the Illinois side of the river. And, and, and it's just like, yeah, and so? What's, what's right. the contacts of another corporation, even if they're related, uh, have to do with the contacts of, and, and I don't understand how you could possibly take judicial notice of that. I mean, it may very well be true. I'm not sure of its relevance, but I also don't know how you take judicial notice of it. I, I have a strong feeling this case is going to come out against the defendants, um, getting a little ahead of ourselves, but I... I, I just think that would be a real mistake Yeah, because I just don't see this personal jurisdiction here. I will say one thing in favor of keeping the case in Illinois is there are at least two doctors who are Illinois residents who were, who didn't challenge personal jurisdiction. So you may end up having this case bifurcated between Illinois and Missouri if they don't uh, dismiss the case and bring the whole thing over to Missouri where the doctors who allegedly committed the malpractice plainly are subject to specific personal jurisdiction because the alleged malpractice occurred in Missouri. You could get everybody in Missouri. Yeah. I'm not sure you should be able to get everybody in Illinois. This might not be the end of this case. Dan, I've droned on long enough. What are your thoughts? I agree with you, Pat. Listening to oral arguments, I think you're right, you know, skipping ahead, but I had the same questions. I don't know how you, how you find uh, personal jurisdiction here, uh, like you said, unsolicited. Um, the parent company should have nothing to do with it. Again, not not the same entity, you know. So it's a, uh, but but we'll we'll see what happens. And like you said, if if whatever happens, that you know, we'll probably see this being uh, petitioned to Supreme Court if it comes out against the defendants. And I, either way, I would expect. I, I think so too. Um, yeah. So. Interesting case. It's important enough to keep the thing in, in, in St. Clair County. If they it can. is. So with that, we'll take our first break and come back with segment two, discussing another open and obvious case. We're back for segment two of episode 105 of the Podium and Panel podcast. And 
the questions in this case are, is a lit candle an open and obvious condition? That may not be so obvious. Uh, does it impact the analysis that the glass rim of the candle was at least partially damaged? Should it impact the entry of summary judgment that the plaintiff did not engage an expert to testify that the behavior of the candle was changed by the damage to the glass part of the candle? Or is lay testimony sufficient? Does it matter that the plaintiff is a minor, 13 years old, and the defendant, her mother, I did, that, I did not just miss yeah. she sued her mother, placed the candle on a dresser while the child slept, did not tell her of the presence of the candle, and then instructed her to take her earrings off using the mirror that was next to, that was on the dresser where the candle sat. What impact does it have that the plaintiff claims that she did not see the candle? Those are among the questions to be addressed when the Illinois Appellate Court First District decides Norwood versus Moore. The plaintiff was severely burned when she leaned over the candle, although maybe she didn't lean over the candle. In any event, her shirt caught fire. It was a baggy shirt. The circuit court entered summary judgment in favor of the defendant. Dan, tell us about the oral argument. Sure. And uh, it was a very long argument. It was over an hour long. And uh, the panel, as we've talked about uh, frequently on here, uh, was made up of Justices Hyman, Walker, and Coughlin. And the appellant right out of the gate, uh, a lot of questions. Like you said, Pat, one of the questions that was asked by Justice Coughlin was why no expert was retained in this matter. Um This oral argument in this case raised a lot of questions for me just because um, the the whole fact pattern, like you said, she sued her mother. She's 13. Um, There was a lot of discussion about the fact that the mother had never put any candle like this before on her dresser. Um, You talked about the damage to to the candle. Um, It was unclear if there was a crack in in the top of it. It was four inches tall, the glass or something, and there was a crack or or and so um, why the mom put that there, then lit it, you know, while I mean, all these things, just as, as I was listening to oral argument, I, I kept thinking to myself, what, what in the hell's going on here? <laughs> you know, so mom puts a candle in her room, she lights it. And then, like I said, tells her to take her earrings off. I don't even understand the mechanics of how the, this oversized shirt that she's wearing, it goes over the candle. Um, but as we've talked about with with, with this panel, uh, they uh, uh, were not buying, like you said, the, the not not buying the uh, dec- decision or the uh, defendants uh, what, what, what they were selling. Um, and again, they've run out of the gate. Um, the uh, advocate for the appellant talked about the uh, dangerous condition that was caused by the candle and the cause of injury. Um, you know, I, th- I think we've done open and obvious before, Pat, but I think in this case, really struggle with, with again, can a candle even be an open, can a flame be, uh, you know, a, a, a condition that's, you know, a dangerous condition. So, I I, I mean, I guess you could. It's plainly a dangerous well, condition. Well, yeah, yeah. And, and I don't, I mean, fire is plainly it a, is. a dangerous condition, but I, I I don't understand how you could have anything more open and obvious right. than, than a right. candle. Right. Get, get, get fire near an animal and see what happens. Right, right. Uh. <laughs> um, and, and what, what you know, Justice Hyman asked the question, you know, he said she, she knew that the candle was open and obvious. She conceded that. 
uh, conceded, and, and the advocate said, yeah, I conceded she suck and that the, the container was broken. And again, I don't, I don't know what kind of candle this was. I'm trying to envision it as I was listening to it. I think they said it was a glade. Yeah. So it was the one that was supposed to get rid of, apparently the daughter, uh, apparently there was a spell. Yeah. So they, that, that's why I think she may have put the candle on. It's unclear, but it was a glade, glade candle. candle and four inches tall or something, the the, uh, the glass. It was, a, again, um, yeah, the, the, again, li- li- listening to this, you know, I, I think, uh, like, like, like we've talked about, you know, Justice Hyman was really asking questions, you know, whether, you know, questions about whether the candle was visible. Um, he said at one time that open and obvious does not answer the question here. Uh, how tall was the how dresser, tall was the dresser how tall was the child. The child that, you know, the, that the candle was broken doesn't answer the question, you know, that, uh, a lot of questions here. Um, and so, you know, from, from the perspective of this case, it, it, you know, from, from listening to this panel, I, I, I think what we're going to find here, uh, will, will be you know, the reversal of the motion for summary judgment, because I think what what Justice Hyman and Justice Walker and Justice Coughlin by their questions were really trying to focus on is that there are questions of fact in this case. And again, even, yeah. even if you get beyond all those facts, though, I'm not sure what the, you know, what what the uh, how, how this case is going to have an outcome any different. I just I'm, I'm struggling here to uh, you know, based on these facts, to to. Well, I think that the injury to the plaintiff, if they get that in front of yeah. the jury, they're going to want to find. So they're going to want to give her something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and more, maybe more. Well, more than something. Yeah. And you know, the question I have is, why did they sue the shirt manufacturer? Right. I mean, your shirt shouldn't go up in, in in. I mean, yes, I understand cloth burns, sure, but it shouldn't. It sounded like it like went up in flames like right now, right. and she suffered these these really horrible burns. Uh, why not name the shirt manufacturer uh, number one? Why not name the retailer of the shirt manufacturer? Yeah. Um, the so I don't know where that was. Yeah, most of, I mean a lot of clothes. Have, I mean baby clothes for sure, but kids' clothes most yeah. most clothing is is fire retardant at least at some level. It, it doesn't you know it, it it's. Uh, for this very right, reason. Right. And and it's required to be, right? There's there, you know, I have a friend that does a lot of defensive product liability for, you know, clothing and and, and furniture and stuff, because again, things are not, like you said, you know, the small candle, it's just you know, the flame, however big it was, the, the fact that her shirt, you know, instantly torched is, is, you know, it's a problem here. So um and and they did the other thing is Go ahead. And, and they did say, you know, if they got got beyond motion for summary judgment, you know, going back, they would get an expert to, to testify, I guess, about the, the candle and the danger. But uh, um, absent absent the candle, which it doesn't exist anymore. I, I don't know how an expert's going to opine on that. Right. And why did they get an expert in order to resist summary judgment? Yeah. I don't um, know. The, the the other the other thing I want to add is that the. Um, they kept coming back to, well, she didn't see, there's a te- question of whether she saw the candle. Does it matter if she saw the candle? Open and obvious is an objective standard. Would a reasonable person have seen and appreciated the danger? Right. There's a candle there. I, 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 it's, it's one of those things that, it, it's one of the things that gives off its own light. Right. 
you know, like holes in the ground don't give off their own light. They kind of suck it in. It's, it can be dark. It can be hidden. Right. This is the thing that gives off its own right. light. And, and, and one of the things that got me was the defendant kept arguing, well, it was a well-lit room. I said, that's not helping you. The darker it is, the easier it is to see the candle. Right. So let's make the room dark so you can see the candle. <laughs> <laughs> right. The more light there is, the harder it is to see the candle. Exactly. Um, I, I don't know. I, 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 I like you. Doesn't take much tea leaf reading to get where at least Justice Hyman is, and perhaps the other justices as well. Uh, but I, I don't understand how a candle is not an open and obvious condition. I will be interested to read this opinion as to how they conclude that a candle is not open and obvious. Right. But that's the opinion I expect we're going to read. I think so too. Uh, so with that, we'll take our next break and come back with arbitration because why not save money by arbitrating? when we can litigate about whether we should arbitrate. <laughs> that seems to be the way of the world. Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at podiumandpanelpodcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. Welcome back for segment three of episode 105 of the Podium and Panel podcast. And as we mentioned at the top, we're going to cover two arbitration cases. The Illinois Appellate Court, 5th District, heard two cases involving arbitration this past week. They were back-to-back. And Copper Bend Pharmacy Inc. versus Optum RX, a dispute that Pat has previously posted about, and previously dis- we previously discussed in episode thirty-six of the show. Uh, the court will decide whether the arbitration clause of the agreements are enforceable. Unlike an air room, recently decided by the Illinois Appellate Court First District, California law, which applies to this case, requires both procedural and substantive unconscionability to be proved. The questions to be addressed in this case include whether setting off a clause as an alternative dispute resolution on page 119 of an agreement is a surprise sufficient to support procedural unconscionability. Does it matter that this is a B2B dispute, business to business, and not an employment case? Does it matter that most of the plaintiff pharmacies did not see the arbitration clauses? as they came into these agreements through a pharmacy service administrative organization, a PSAO, how should the court apply? Which, by the way, I had to look yeah. up. I had to look up what that was because they never actually identified it during the argument. Judge Easterbrook would have hated this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> how should the court apply Viking River Cruises versus Moriana, or should it, in which the Supreme Court of the United States held that individual arbitration can be compelled? This, uh, oops. Let me get up here. And then in Rotan versus Unlimited Development Inc., the court will decide whether arbitration should be compelled in nursing home contract, where there's a delegation clause in the agreement, which gives the arbitrator the authority to decide the scope of the arbitration, and a plaintiff fails to challenge the delegation clause. This led Justice Cates to ask, why are we here? Does it matter that it was an agreement with a consumer and not a business relationship? Does a proponent of the application of a delegation clause have to separately plead that argument? And both arguments will be uh, linked, as always, with our posting of the podcast. Pat, tell us about arguments in these two cases. Thanks, Dan. So let's start with uh, Copper Bend. Uh, 
This, if you may not recall, but this is a case that we previously discussed, a dispute arose between pharmacies and a pharmacy care provider, uh, and the suit was filed by the plaintiffs in state court in Illinois. Uh, an affirmative defense of a mandatory arbitration was raised based on the contracts the defendants sought to stay. Uh, sometime later, the defendant filed suit in federal district court in California. The court denied a motion to stay and the defendant appealed. The ultimate result of that first appeal was denial of the motion to stay. And then I believe there was a petition for leave to appeal filed, which was denied. So back to the circuit court they went. And now on, on remand to the circuit court, they argue, well, you have to arbitrate these things. And so now that motion to, dis that motion to dismiss or to compel arbitration was denied. So we have appeal number two, and that's where we find ourselves today. And so in this case, the issue is the court, the trial court held that the arbitration clauses were procedurally and substantively unconscionable and therefore unenforceable. Um, and among the issues were, so they have not only this, uh, this agreement, but they also have the ser service manual. And one is about 15 or 20 pages, and the other is like 120 pages. And buried on 109, page 119 is something called this alternative dispute resolution. And the court held that, no, that's, that's a surprise, and you couldn't find it. It's not even called an arbitration clause. It's called our, our alternative dispute resolution. I imagine it's called alternative dispute resolution, because typically in these clauses, you first have to try to right. mediate before you arbitrate. And so they use both forms, principal forms of alternative dispute resolution, uh, and therefore to call it an arbitration clause would be not entirely accurate. So that's usually how these clauses are called. And apparently there's a California Supreme Court case that says, yeah, or not a California Supreme Court case, but a California appellate court case that says that's not a surprise. It's set off in its own provision, and it says we'll see how that goes. The other thing that's very interesting is that 45 of these 48 plaintiffs did not actually see the agreement. They went through the, uh, because they didn't directly contract with, with Optum. They went through a pharmacy service administrative organization who agreed to it on their behalf. And so there's a question of agency law, whether they, whether they are bound by what their agent agreed to. And there's this distinction that defendant tried to make between not seeing it and not being allowed to see it. There's an argument about the language of the agreement as to whether they were actually prevented from seeing it. A lot of these cases, and in particular the cases cited by the plaintiffs, are in the employment context where there's an obvious disparity in power as opposed to the business-to-business -business context, which is this one, where there's less of a concern about power uh, disparities and the enforcement of these things. And then you have this whole issue about whether you can collectively arbitrate. And that's the issue that was addressed in Viking River Cruises, which was filed as a supplemental authority by the defendants' appellants and whether uh, they could compel uh, collective arbitration, which was forbidden under the agreement and obviously substantially raises the costs uh, of doing the arbitration. The irony of the defendants citing the Viking River Cruises case is that it is an employment case. Right. Uh, and I guess what their point is, hold it, if you can make them, if you can bar them from collectively arbitrating an employment case, you surely can make them not collectively arbitrate and individually arbitrate. A business case. I actually think it, the distinction helps the defendants in this case uh, when you apply the FAA to it. So I, I'm not a big fan of arbitration, uh, 
the defendant, the plaintiffs plainly aren't because they're complaining they're not going to get the discovery to be able to prove their cases. And there isn't really discovery allowed in the under the AAA rules. And they're going to have to be basically flying blind. Uh, and it's going to cost them a whole ton of money to bring in their witnesses, examine them in front of three arbitrators. And then there's a fee shifting clause that even if they win, they could still have to pay the fees on 48 separate arbitrations of three arbitrators. I mean, it could cost them. I don't think it's an exaggeration for them to say it could cost them $15,000 a day for arbitration. And these are going to be multi-day arbitrations. I don't know how much money is at stake, but it's a whole lot would be, I get the plaintiff's point to be a whole lot more efficient to do these collectively all 48 at the same time, as opposed to presenting these to each different group of arbitrators, even if you had some overlap between the arbitrators. What a, what, what, what a nightmare yep. uh, and what an expense. To the defendant's point, to the plaintiff's point, that's the point of what required arbitration is to try to bleed the plaintiff dry and not let them uh, uh, pursue their actions collectively and raise their costs and prevent them from being sued in the first instance. So that's the that's the Copper Bend case. Anything else to add on that case before we go to the Rotan case? Nope. Try to figure out why nope, we're here. Nope, we've covered it. So in Rotan, there is a page and a half long arbitration agreement as part of 14 separate documents that were entered into when the plaintiff signed into a nursing home facility. And that page and a half agreement also had a clause that says the arbitrator gets to determine the scope of the arbitration. It's called a delegation clause. And the argument from the defendant is that this is a separate agreement to arbitrate this particular thing. Now, usually the scope of arbitration is determined by the court, but not so when you have a situation where the agreement has a delegation clause. Um, there's this reference in the, the argument to something called the ZIF rule. Is that I'm not familiar with this case, but this, this rule that if you have a group of documents, in this case, these 14 documents, they're entered at the same time for the same purpose, they're to be construed together as, as one group. Um, the Justice Cates asked the defense counsel who was trying to compel the arbitration, why are we here if, if, if you, we, we're not allowed to decide the scope of the arbitration and defense counsel like, yeah, I don't know why we're here. We shouldn't mm -hmm. be. We should enforce the arbitration clause as written. They didn't raise the delegate, the an objection to the delegation clause. They've conceded. They didn't raise the issue of the delegation clause. It's a waiver. It's controlling. And we should go to arbitration. We'll see how well that works. It was plain that counsel for the defendant was very well versed in these, these cases. Um, uh, these arbitration cases, kind of its own little cottage industry, as you can tell. Mm -hmm. Uh, from um, both the number of cases that have gone to the Supreme Court, I think there were three this yeah. term that dealt with arbitration, uh, and more to come. Uh, this fight over whether to arbitrate or not is a huge deal. Uh, Dan, anything else to add on this Rotan case? No, I agree. I agree with you. The defense counsel is very well uh, versed in, in the law in these cases. She was, and, and we'll see if, uh, if that carries the day or not. Um, and if Judge Justice Cates can find a reason why they're there. I'm not, I don't know. <laughs> which brings us, which brings us to uh, our business interruption for COVID week. And it was a very good week for the policyholders. Uh, one, they won two, one appellate court opinion in California and one in Colorado. The one in California seems to be more procedural, yep. whereas the one in Colorado was more substantive. Um, the one in California held that under the pleading standards, the plaintiffs get to go back and see if they can prove their allegations and it reversed a motion to dismiss. The case in Colorado referred to a 1958 
Colorado Supreme Court case that physical damage doesn't require alteration in order for a claim to be made, which would seem to suggest that they've decided the issue under Colorado law, at least the intermediate appellate court has. Uh, no doubt these will be appealed to the highest courts in those respective states. Um, but uh, we'll, we'll see. So as I say, it's, now there's three opinions that have come out in favor of, of policyholders. One from the one from Louisiana, one from California, one from Colorado. All intermediate level courts of appeal. We'll see if the Supreme Courts of those states agree. Yep. And anything else to add on that, Dan? No. Yeah, we'll we'll see if, if they hold up, and um, you know, it's uh, again e- e- even assuming they they are upheld, and these uh, you know policyholder wins as we've talked about. It's it's uh, still a major road to. Uh, actual recovery, as many people have been writing about in various forums. It is. That brings us to our prediction sure to go wrong, and we uh, are now 158 and a half, 28 and a half, and 10. There were two no decisions and one and one decision that we got right. Um, Dan, why don't you tell us about Rankins versus DHL? Sure. Because or Rankins versus Systems Systems was it System. Solutions of Kentucky, Kentucky versus DHL. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a, Tell us about what the decision is, because I've changed my mind on what this decision means. Okay. From what I initially thought. So why don't you tell us about what happened? Sure. So the, the, this case involved an employee, uh, Anthony Rankins, who was a DHL employee. He was injured seriously at a, at a Chicago facility of DHL when a cable within a winch system snapped. Uh, the winch system was designed and installed by System Solution of Kentucky LLC. He and Rankins brought a products liability cl- claim in state court against uh, SSK, the System Solution, the winch uh, designer, and its sole member, Loomis Corporation. Uh, but DHL lost the physical pieces of the winch system after the suit was removed to the federal district court. Uh, after lo- Learning that, SSK brought a third-party suit against DHL seeking damages for the spoliation of evidence. The district court dismissed SSK's third-party claim after DHL settled with Rankins, finding that DHL's contribution payments were enough to discharge all liabilities relating to Rankins' injury. Recognizing that SSK sought to press its spoliation claim against DHL, the court certified its resolution of the SSK third-party claim for appeal issuing an order styled as a Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 54B partial final judgment because the spoliation claim is intimately related to the product's liability claim still pending in the district court. The Seventh Circuit held that Rule 54B was not available for an immediate appeal, and so they dismissed SSK's appeal for lack of jurisdiction. They said if SSK seeks to appeal the district court's rejection of its spoliation issue and DHL's dismissal from the case, it must wait until a final judgment has been entered. So, so initially, I thought that this meant that DHL was out of the case. I don't think that's no, what it I means. don't think so. I think what it means is DH is that the dismissal of DHL, DHL isn't actually dismissed. Yeah. I I I, I th- they didn't actually say that, but implicit in their opinion is that the court didn't actually dismiss DHL even though the district court said it dismissed DHL. I, I think what this case means, this opinion means, is that DHL is still in the case on the spoliation, and it's not a final judgment, and they can 
deal with that and figure out if DHL belongs in the case or not, or whether there's spoliate, whether there's actually a viable spoliation claim. That's what I think it needs. I think so. Um, initially, I thought that, that that this was going to have to get bifurcated, and then they were going to make a big mess of it. I don't think that's what they actually ruled. I think you're right. We'll see. Because it was very unclear, at least to me, as to what they were doing. But we got that. We we had to. We got us. We got a tie on that one because we said that they were going. Uh, we made a prediction as what they were going to. We thought there was jurisdiction, right. but the court held there was yep. jurisdiction. Which brings us to Highland versus Society, uh, which is a COVID nineteen case, but not that's not the merits of the case. The issue is whether there was venue in Madison County over the over an insurer where the LLC. Its member has an office in Madison County, even though nothing to do with the insurance and the business is actually in Madison County. It's all in Champaign and 33 other locations around the state, none within 150 miles of Madison. The court held that it didn't have, despite having granted leave to appeal, it did not have uh, appellate jurisdiction because Rule 306B4 only allows appellate jurisdiction where the there's a it's an issue of the defendants that, uh, you know being the cause of the venue and they can only be challenged if the plaintiff doesn't come forward with any quote legitimate basis for there to be venue in the jurisdiction so implicit in this ruling is that the plaintiff had come forward with legitimate basis for there to be venue um, this is a bit it's important to note that this was not an oral argument. This was never briefed. They didn't ask for supplemental briefing. That this was just done sua sponte after oral argument. And they just simply issued a ruling dismissing the appeal as not having uh, appellate jurisdiction. Not a fan of that particular manner of proceeding, but that's what they did. And uh, we'll, we'll see. I imagine there'll be a petition for rehearing to say, hold it now. You know, you, you've, you've, you know, you've got to give us an opportunity to brief this issue. We'll see yeah. what happens. But uh, an interesting way for this case to have gone. Uh, and so the, it, they'll not have to litigate that issue in Madison County. Anything else to add to the, about the Highland case? No, it's another, but it's another tie for us. So no win-loss. Yep. Right. And then the last one we got right is Hudson versus Pate. This is from the 4th District. The, this is the hose pole case where the young lady had her leg fractured as a result of the uh, actions of the of the defendant's son. And the, the trial court held that there, this was an open and obvious condition. The appellate court reversed and said, no, it's an activity and, the, and it's not a, uh, not a condition on the land and therefore open and obvious doesn't apply. We got it right. I don't like it, but right. it, you know, we still got it right. Yeah, we got it right, and we'll see where this goes after this. Exactly, which brings us to the prediction sure to go wrong this week. I think we've already kind of disclosed where we stand. Uh, Allen is going to be affirmed. I think so. I don't think it should be, but I think it will. Norwood's going to be reversed. And then um, Copper Bend is going to be affirmed. And I think Rotan is going to be affirmed. I agree. I think I know that. Yeah, I'm not sure I agree with any of those rulings, <laughs> but that's where I think it's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. Nah, you know, 
maybe, maybe they'll surprise us, but yeah, they're, they're, I think it's still. Maybe they will, but the, the oral arguments are any right. guide. Uh, you know, the, 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 that's where I think they're going to go. Dan, why don't you tell us about the rule of the week? Sure, and this comes to us uh, from LinkedIn and from Tim Kowal. I think that's how you pronounce it, K-O-W-A-L. Uh, he's somebody, if you're not following, uh, you might want to follow on LinkedIn. He uh, writes a lot about Absolutely. California and other appellate law. We've uh, Pat, we've discussed unpublished opinions before, but he, he wrote kind of a unique spin on it in the California as only California can do. Um, and and a tongue, kind of a tongue twister of sorts. So what he wrote was that lawyers in California courts may not rely on unpublished cases, which is the norm in a lot of places, but federal courts may. And California courts may rely on federal courts, even when the federal court relies on an unpublished California case. And Mesa versus, yeah, <laughs> there you go, right? So, and, 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 yeah, and Mesa versus Pacific Bell Telephone, uh, the the district court second uh, from July twelfth. That's just what the California case uh, court did. Mesa filed a class action against his employer, Pac Bell, over meal and rest violations. The trial court denied class certification as to certain of the claims, and Mesa appealed from this from that order, among others. The court of appeal reversed, finding that the claims were common among the class members. As part of its analysis, the court relied on a, on a Ninth Circuit decision. But as the Mesa court acknowledged, the Ninth Circuit relied on two unpublished California appellate decisions and its analysis of the issue. Mesa further acknowledged that, quote, we are not permitted to rely on such cases, end quote. But the resourceful court went on, quote, a federal court may do so, end quote. And so Tim writes that this is one of the many ways courts commonly disregard the no citation rule under California rules of court, rule 8.1115. And he has a longer article on LinkedIn about it. And again, someone you should consider following. But we've talked about unpublished opinions in Illinois and other jurisdictions, Pat, and just a, a, an interesting twist. Indeed. Um, so with that, anything else to add, Dan, before, nope. we, before nope. we go? Well, thank you, everybody, for joining us this week. We'll see you next week on the Podium and Panel Podcast. I'm Dan Cotter, and on behalf of my co-host, Pat Eckler, we thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the podium and panel. Each episode on the podium and panel podcast We will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court, with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.